0: A king or even just an American president what would you say to him what would you say to a king now let's change the situation a little bit what would you say to a king who just got done waging a series of very successful wars and being established as a king in his place is now at rest is able to get a moment to reflect and to think and to maybe make plans for the future of his reign? Or we could put this into an American context. What would you say to a a man who was just elected president of the United States and now is faced with the need to map out a plan for his administration? Because you know he's not going to keep any of his campaign promises, so now he actually has to figure out what to do. What would you say to such a one as this? At rest, after a period of turbulence, and then installed or set into a position of great authority. Well, I don't know what I would say. because I don't know that it will really ever happen to me. But I'm sure when the time comes, the Spirit will give me something fit and apropos. What we have in our text today is such a situation where God speaks to a king. God speaks to a king who is now settled on his throne after a very, very long time of turbulence and and terror even surrounding him on every side until he gets installed and established on his throne in his city. And so we can answer this question, what God would say to a king who is seated on his throne, or at least what God has said to one particular king, a very remarkable king. King David of Bethlehem. This passage, as I mentioned before in introducing our hymn of preparation, is cited frequently by biblical scholars as the passage, the turning point, perhaps even the theme passage of all the Old Testament. This is the center point of what some scholars call the Deuteronomistic history. That history which flows out of Deuteronomy and brings us to the exile, and even carries the people of God forward through the exile to the coming Messiah. It is in this passage that we have the source of the Jewish people's hope for a Messiah to deliver them, to redeem them, to reunite them. It is in this passage that we have the great theme of the New Testament, and particularly of Matthew's Gospel, which we'll be looking at over the next few months. Few years I should say and that is that Christ is king Christ is the Messiah Christ has come to usher in the kingdom of God according to a particular promise to his ancestor King David up to this point in Samuel um, first and second Samuel were Uh, one big scroll when it was originally put into Hebrew. And then at a certain point, it was divided into two scrolls, kind of arbitrarily. So we have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. But through this history, focusing on three particular individuals, Samuel, Saul, and David, we've been taken from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. That is the narrative flow of the book of Samuel. That's kind of the purpose of the book. And through that, we've seen a few different things, though not here together because we haven't been going through Samuel, but if you read those books, and I'm sure most of you have, you will have noted a few different things. One is the authority of God's word, speaking through the prophets. The other one is the great theme of kingship and the theme of God's presence, what God is doing, and the question whether or not God really needs anybody to accomplish his purposes. In fact, God accomplishes his purposes Through some characters, like David, and quite frequently, in spite of some characters, like Saul. And that's a great foil that's put up as the kingdom is established in Israel. You have these two kings, Saul and David, who are at odds with one another through much of their personal history, but even considered apart from that particular conflict, are clearly two men cut from two very different kinds of cloth. David though flawed, terribly flawed, and a great sinner, recorded for us all his exploits, good and bad. David is a man yet after God's own heart. Saul is a king like the pagan kings around Israel who rushes headlong into things on his own initiative and frequently in outright rebellion against the word of God. In this passage, we see what God does in David's life to establish this kind of king over his people for all eternity, in rejection of this Saulish kind of king. What I seek to show you tonight is, in fact, and you can—I uh, kind of hinted this to you or tipped off my plan to you with the title of the sermon: "A King from David." But my purpose tonight is to show you that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the king from David, whom God himself chose to found an eternal kingdom. Jesus Christ is the king from David, whom God himself chose to found an eternal kingdom. Well, we're going to consider that theme or that big idea from this text under two headings. First, We'll look at God's grace in choosing David in verses 8 through 11. God's grace in choosing David. And then at the second half of verse 11, we'll look at then God's covenant promise to David fulfilled in Christ. God's covenant promise to David fulfilled in Christ. So first, we have to do a little bit of retrospective because that's what God does in these words to David himself in verses 8 to 11 looking at and considering God's grace in choosing David. Look at the text with me. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. Up to this point, um, in verse 1, we have uh, David getting settled in his house. It's a grand royal palace with cedar paneling. And he considers the fact that the tabernacle, (coughs) which he just brought into Jerusalem, It's still pavilioned in uh, textiles. It's in a a tent complex. God doesn't have a permanent house. And he thinks, why do I have a house? But God doesn't. God should really have a house. So he gets this idea. He goes to Nathan the prophet. He says, hey, should I build God a temple? And Nathan the prophet, a bit hastily, but not without justification, says, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Nathan perceives that God is in fact with David giving him success. And he knows from Deuteronomy that um, God will and he intends to have a temple for himself in the land. So he figures, okay, this is a totally fine plan. But Nathan made a mistake. He didn't consult the Lord. And so that same night in verse four, we read that God corrects this plan. We're not going to look exactly at those details of why God is holding off on making a temple to himself. There are a number of Uh, possibilities there that are pretty interesting, but it's not really the point of my my sermon tonight, and so I don't want to get bogged down in those details. But at verse 8, suffice it to say, after telling David, you're not going to be the one to build me a temple, that's not how we're doing this, God shifts, there's a turning point, and he says, now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, this is what the deal is. And in verses 8 to 11, we have God recounting to David what he has done for him already to prepare him for what he will do for him in verses 11 through 16. And in these verses 8 to 11, in God's grace in choosing David, we see David's beginning with humility but destined for greatness. We see him being, we see God being with David in battle and all of his exploits we see God blessing David according to Abraham. And then we see God bringing order out of chaos through David. And we're going to consider those four, those four um, grand themes in David's life that really summarize everything God has been doing for David up to this point in God's grace in choosing him. First in verse 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, he uses this name, Lord of hosts, whenever he's about to initiate a great social change in Israel in the books of First and 2 Samuel. He says, I took you from the pasture, from the sheepfold, from the grazing ground, from, it says, following the sheep in our text, but really leading the sheep, being over the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. He took David from humble beginnings as a shepherd boy in Bethlehem Ephrathah over literal sheep. Then he sets him over his own flock, the people of Israel, his beloved. And starting with this detail, God is doing two things. First, he's showing David, you have a beginning in a, a very humble situation. You were but a lad. You were a ruddy shepherd boy, but you were destined for greatness. Why? Because I took you. I chose you. David is keenly aware of this. Up to this point in his life, he has been the model of humility before the Lord. He's never thought, he hasn't seemed anyway to think, to have thought too highly of himself, especially when he's done hasty things. And when certain of his actions have caused tragedy, he has lamented that. And he has been contrite of heart, unlike King Saul, who was an arrogant and proud man chasing after his own designs and never really seeking after the Lord. And and when he did do so, it was in a perverse, kind of twisted way, going to witches and diviners rather than going through God's established means. But God is saying, I took you from humility where you began, and I've destined you for greatness out of my grace to be ruler over my people Israel. And then in verse 9, in the first part of verse 9, he reminds him that he has been with him in battle. God has continually been with David in his battles. Look at verse 9 with me. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. That is particularly relevant in the opening verse or chapters of 2 Samuel. At the end of 1 Samuel, we do have... Maybe it's not totally arbitrary. We have the death of, um, of Jonathan and of Saul and a number of Saul's other sons. And basically, the kingdom's up in the air. And then in uh, 2 Samuel 1, basically through 2 Samuel 6, you have David putting down the house of Saul once and for all by uh, taking over Ishbosheth, but then also putting down the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, in a systematic fashion in a way that Saul never really did, thus winning peace for the people of Israel after generations of chaos. And all along, we're told that God has been with him. And God's reminding him of that. He's summarizing that for David. Nathan has already said that earlier, go do all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you. This is a fact that he already knows, but he's being reminded of it. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off, I actually prefer this, cut down all your enemies from before your face. What is God doing in these two details in particular and also in the next details to come in highlighting and rehearsing his grace to David? He has just told David, you want to build a temple for me. I understand that. You're not going to be the one to do it. And that that would cause me a bit of anxiety. I'm sure it would cause you some anxiety. You have a good plan, you think, to serve the Lord. And then he says, we're not doing that. That's not you. I'm sorry. So God comes in a very tender way, and he encourages David. And he, he reminds him of what he's done for him and that he's not abandoning him. He says, yes, you're getting a no from me today, but I'm still with you. I have been with you wherever you have gone. Now, isn't this what we do as parents with our children? Our kids come to us and they say, Daddy, I want a Lego Death Star. And you think, man, that thing's $1,500. I'm not getting that. And you say to your son, you're not going to get the Lego Death Star. It's pretty cool, but you're not going to get that. And then you, you just leave it at that? No, as a good father or a good mother, you say, but you know what? I was already planning to do this anyway. Um, remember how we went and got ice cream last week? Let's go do that again uh, this week after you clean your room. Or something like that. You, 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 you bring a comforting word. I know it's, a, it's a homey uh, illustration, but what God is doing here with David is he's treating him like a good father would a son. He's refusing him something, but then giving him encouragement and comfort in the midst of it. And we do the same thing in our seminary classes. Uh, I remember seeing this over and over again with myself and with my classmates during sermon critiques, which are particularly perilous moments in a seminary education. The first professor gets up. And whether that sermon was terrible or really good, doesn't matter. He starts with something good. He brings some comfort and then you know that that right hook is coming around right behind that something is something's gonna land it's gonna hurt but a good professor a good dad a good mom a good friend whenever you're bringing critique or you're bringing redirection or you're saying no to something you're going to emphasize something good even in the same breath and and god does that the third thing We've seen God reminding David, you've begun with humility, but you're destined for greatness. I've been with you in battle, and now he highlights a series of discrete blessings that are according to God's promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and then again in Genesis 15. And there's a grammatical point I need to make here. Uh, you'll, you probably noticed, if you were reading along, that in halfway through verse 9, where the text begins speaking in the future tense, I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men. I will also appoint a place and so on. I put that into the past tense. Why did I do that? Well, there's some ambiguity in the text. And most of our modern translations do translate verses 9b through 11a in the future. The King James Version, I think, takes two of them in the past and two of them in the future. I'm not really sure why it does that. And then Young's literal translation from 1898 does what I wanna do, and that is puts everything into the past. And the reason why I do that grammatically has to do with Hebrew syntax and the kinds, the verb forms that are being used and the way they're put together. It could be either way, they're both possible, but we see in Jeremiah 37, 15, the same exact pattern with particular and statements followed by particular forms of verbs, putting something into the past to give a reason for or a justification for a future promise or blessing. And I don't want to get into the weeds on that, but suffice it to say, what God is doing here is he is building on what he has already said to David, and that is that I have been blessing you, and now he's going right to the heart of the Jewish Faith and religion. He says, in fact, I've been blessing you in fulfillment of promises to Abraham. Now, if you're not convinced that these should be in the past tense, I will tell you this. The majority of commentators who do believe they should be in the future still link it to Abraham <laughs> because it doesn't have to do with the tense of the verb. And they just say that God is promising to David that he will, through his covenant with David, fulfill the promises to Abraham. And I agree with that too. But I think what he's doing here in this text in particular and in, in highlighting his grace in, cho- in choosing David is he is showing David the connection that his life already has as a fulfillment of promises to Abraham. And what are those promises? First, I have made you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. That was one of the key promises to Abraham, a great name. And he says, I have also appointed a place for my people Israel And will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. And that place is, in fact, the promised land, which was promised to whom? To Abraham. And God is saying, through you, David, through the peace that you have achieved, that I have achieved for you, you have achieved a peace for my people. And brought a partial fulfillment to that promise to Abraham, that land promise. And he builds on that and he says that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I have given you rest from all your enemies. Driving into the first half of verse 11. So in David's life, Abraham has brought a partial fulfillment, a fulfillment that ultimately rests in Jesus Christ in his life, and we'll explore that in the second half of the passage tonight. But God has brought a partial fulfillment to those promises he made to Abraham. He's brought them not just for David, but for the people. If, um, If the Lord were to give us elders and deacons in the next few months... Pray that he does. And then one of those elders, let's say, gets a major promotion at work. And his salary increases dramatically. And he begins blessing the church uh, financially, uh, perhaps even anonymously. No one knows it's from him or whatever. And the church begins to look nicer or whatever. And, and we get cushioned seats so that you all can you know, be comfortable during these long-winded sermons and everything. Would we recognize that promotion as a blessing merely to that elder? Or would it also be a blessing to the whole church, in a way? That's an illustration of what has happened here. God is saying, and making this Abrahamic, he's saying, not only have I blessed you, but in blessing you, I have brought blessing to my people, to my church, God is saying. And that is the way of God. He blesses us individually and our families individually to be a blessing to the church In fact, that's what david's heart's desire was in wanting to build a temple he recognized that he was at peace he was at rest he had everything he did and then he considered that the church building the tabernacle so to speak was kind of pathetic compared to his royal palace and he wanted to bless the whole community in giving glory to god by establishing a temple according to god's word And God is saying, I've already done that through you. You don't have to build a temple to force that point. And then finally, beginning with humility, being with him in battle, blessing according to Abraham, we have at the end of verse 10 into the beginning of verse 11, bringing order out of chaos. Remember what I said, the purpose of the books of Samuel is to bring us from the time of the judges into the times of the king's. What were the times of the judges characterized as? Does anyone remember from my Ruth series? Chaos, disorder. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. But why? There was no king in Israel. And here, God is making that point to David. He says, um, I have planted them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I have given you rest from all your enemies. God is making this connection to David, not only to his past history and to the Abrahamic promises, but also to the whole people of Israel. And God is saying, I have chose you, and in doing so, I have shown my grace to you brothers and sisters, to make a theological point of this. There is much talk in our day, not so much in the Presbyterian church, but in Baptist churches, from which many of us come, much talk of Calvinism and Arminianism. And the God of Arminianism lets you choose, lets you have free will to embrace him. He's a good God. He's not going to force you to do anything. But the God of Calvinism is a cruel taskmaster who made a bunch of robots And programs them either for hell or for heaven. That's the caricature that's put out there. My friends, as a church in the Calvinist or Reformed tradition, we recognize that to be a perversion of what we actually believe, don't we? For God's choice, rather than man's choice, God's predestination, election, His grace, that demonstrates His goodness not his tyranny. We understand that in the doctrine of electing uh, salvation, of saving sinners, of choosing men and women and setting his favor upon them, God in that, that doctrine, is not one of dark despair or futility, but is one of liberating grace and salvation. Because in this, we recognize, it's not up to me. Wouldn't David... draw that conclusion himself. Hearing, being reminded of how God has been graciously dealing with him from the sheepfold to the royal palace, David would be reflecting on you know what? It isn't up to me to ensure that God is properly worshipped here in Jerusalem. It's not up to me to make this happen. If God has another plan in mind, that's fine. We have uh, at least one seminary student, and and I've reflected on this quite a bit myself. If upon graduating, you get into a call process with a church, and things seem to be going well, and you get to the final round of interviews with the session or whatever, you get to preach at the church, and you're candidating there, and then they say, you know what, we really liked you, but there was somebody else, and we're going to call him. But hey, we'll let you know if he, if he says no. That could be a major letdown. Take that out of the ministry context. If you do a job interview and you think things are going well, you like the interviewer, you like the work, you like the paycheck that you think you're going to get out of it, and then they say, you know, we went with another applicant for the position, but we wish you the best. That can be a major letdown. It be very depressing to be rejected like that. But, in God, in those times, Do as God does for David here, and remind yourself of his gracious dealings with you at every point of your life, and how he has woven together your experiences as a great tapestry of grace, and be comforted in those times. Be comforted, be reminded of God's grace, and be comforted in it, that his plans are always best. Now, we've been reminded of God's grace in choosing David, of God saving David, and now we're brought into God's covenant promise to David fulfilled in Christ, starting at the second half of verse 11. He says, he shifts gears again. Notice we go from the first person to the third person here. After I have given you rest from all your enemies, he says, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. There are a number of key words in our passage. House is one of them. Forever is another one. And here that key word jumps off the page. What did David want to do? He wanted to make a house for God in building the temple. And here God says, you're not going to do that. I have a better plan. I'm going to make a house for you. This is a covenant promise that God enters into with David, that God makes with David. And in this promise, verses 11 through 16, he promises to build a house, to birth an heir for David. He promises bonds of filial love for that descendant of David. And all of this then is based on God's revealed will in verse 17. This first promise of building a house is the most glorious one and the details of what that will be are fleshed out but i want to make two connections to jesus christ in this relation the first comes from john chapter 2 verses 19 to 22 where J, uh, jesus says about himself that he has come to do what god has even uh, promised to do in david's life he says Destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews instead, thinking he was talking about the physical temple, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus came to build a house. And then in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, we have another reference to this promise of God building a house for David and David's heir who will build a temple then for God. Hebrews 3 3 says, For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, speaking of David, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. And so in building a house, for David, in building a dynasty that will last forever, God brings even greater glory to himself than that dynasty or that house has. The second aspect of his covenant promise is in verses 12 and 13. Look at them with me. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, meaning when you die, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, literally from your loins, and I will establish his kingdom. He says, I will raise up your seed after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We've already seen how Jesus understood this to relate to himself, but there are other passages in the Gospels in particular that relate Jesus to David as David's seed, as David's descendant. Matthew 1.1 starts with the Gospel of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in Mark 10, 47, we get again another reference to Jesus as the son of David. When he, the blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. This promise to birth an heir is the basis of the Jewish expectation of a Messiah who would liberate the people of God from all oppression. Now, the Zealots in Jesus' time understood that to be liberation from Roman oppression, political oppression, but Jesus comes and demonstrates by his word and his miracles that what he's come to bring is a kingdom not of this. Worldly order, but a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. And he is going to liberate God's people from spiritual oppression as the heir of David. In so doing, then, Jesus ushers in a new exodus. It's very interesting in our text. I will raise up your descendant after you. Literally, I will. it could be I will resurrect your descendant after you who will come forth from your loins, who will make exodus from you. It's the same exact word as the the word for come out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage. And this being a covenant passage, we should have in mind God's covenant words to his people at Mount Sinai. And so even here, in this promise to David about his son, his heir, his descendant, We have a promise that extends to all the people of God, of God working a new and more glorious exodus out of darkness and into light, spiritually speaking. This verse then feeds into and inspires all of those promises, those great promises in the prophets of a new exodus, of a return from exile, of a rising up of a Messiah to lead forth the people of God, even one who is a servant of God. the beginning of our text, God refers to David as my servant David. There are just a handful of men in the Old Testament referred to that way, Moses being the most famous. And what do we know of the servant Messiah from Isaiah? He will suffer. He will be maligned. He will be... He will be uh, brutalized. But why? For the cleansing of the people of God, for the salvation of God's people, for the ushering in or ushering out of them, leading them out of darkness, bringing them into fellowship with God in a new exodus. And this grand theme is here in germ form, yet to be developed by the prophets, inspired by God Himself, here in verse 13. And in verses 14 to 16, having promised David to build his house, to birth an heir for him, we then have a promise that's particular to the sons of David who sat on that earthly throne. And that is that I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. What is God promising there? He's promising to build around David bonds of filial love. That even when David's sons sin grievously against God, God will chasten them as sons and not cast them out and obliterate them as he did to Saul in his house. Can you imagine being adopted by a king or a queen? It sounds like fun, doesn't it? It's not fun. If you're in a royal family, you're targeted by, nowadays, paparazzi, but historically by assassins, by foreign armies, people who want to conquer your land, who want to kill you. Just just think of recently, recent history, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, assassinated by the black hand in Serbia. He was mostly a ceremonial... Kind of noble figure in the austro-hungarian empire and he was assassinated launching world war one causing millions of deaths you have the romanov family Tsar nicholas and, and his children anastasia and his wife and they are just brutally murdered in their basement why because he was a king that's it go back a bit further and in our own protestant history we have One of the most remarkable young women of the Reformation, the Lady Jane Grey, who was beheaded. Why? Because somebody else put her up on the throne and her cousin didn't like that very much. Now you go back to ancient Israel in the ancient Near East and the story is much darker. I think of the 17 kings of Israel, if I'm getting this right, nine of them were assassinated and replaced by the ones who killed them. It was a dangerous thing to be in a royal family. And so when God says, I will be a father to your seed after you, I will chasten them, but I will not forsake them. He is, again, comforting David. To put this into just sheer historical terms, the the longest-lasting Egyptian dynasty lasted 250 years. Most dynasties... With royal families, last about 80 to 90 years in the ancient Near East. The longest one in Egypt lasted 250 years. You know, how, you know how long David's dynasty lasted before the Babylonian exile? About 500 years. It's amazing. Just from a point of secular history, it is an amazing detail, in fact. And I think a fulfillment of this promise. But even after the exile, if you go to the end of kings, what do we have about King Jehoiakim the uh, or Jehoiachin, the descendant of David, he is seated at the emperor's table, and he's dressed as a prince. And when we get to Jesus, we have two genealogies that can go back to David, and so you're given all these details showing this great continuity. The fact that they can even trace the ancestry from Jesus all the way back to David is pretty amazing. And what do we know about Jesus as a king? He'll never be thrown off his throne. He has conquered death and sin and Satan. He is exalted in heavenly places and reigning from on high and for all eternity. And that is how God has fulfilled his promise to David through Christ even now. That a son of David, who is also David's Lord for eternity, is seated in heavenly places as a king. And then finally, in verse 17, we read, in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. This is in a throwaway verse at the end of a grand passage of, uh, of God making promises to King David. This is very important. This is based not on the word of man, not on the ideas of men, not on the senses of men, but it's based on the vision that God revealed to his chosen prophet, Nathan. This is immovable. This is, as Dale Ralph Davis said, indefectible. If he had to summarize or characterize this promise, this passage in one word, it just means it cannot be changed. It cannot be removed. It cannot be harmed. It's, it's an inviolable covenant. Yes, the people of Israel would be carried off into captivity, even the people of Judah. But yet, in that captivity, in that exile, they could look forward to and hope for the emergence of a Messiah who would make good on God's promises. How much more can we do that looking back on the true history, looking back on the testimony that's given to us in God's Word? We can see behind us the earthly ministry of Christ in fulfillment of this. And we'll look at that in fuller detail verse by verse through Matthew's Gospel over the next few years. But then we can look up and behold with eyes of faith a risen, reigning son of David, even now in the Lord Jesus Christ, confirming the word of God. What would you say to a king if you had an audience granted to you? What would you say to the President of the United States if you had a half hour to speak to him? I think at the end of the day, whatever we would say wouldn't really matter. But what would God say to the President of the United States? What would God say to a king who actually has power? I think that matters quite a bit. And as we consider in this mini-series how Christ is a prophet and a priest, and now today how Christ is a king, it's very important to hear what God says to a king. For Jesus Christ is the king from David, whom God himself chose to found an eternal kingdom. And what God says to David, God also makes good in Christ, but in a sense speaks to Christ as David's heir. And just as God's blessings in choosing David, his grace to David, reverberates through the whole nation, blessing all of Israel with peace and prosperity for a time, so too God's blessings Jesus Christ our head don't just trickle down they flow down they cascade down like a mighty waterfall upon all of us who are united to him through faith by grace and brought into his church and this is where the great relevance of this comes in and why is this so important that this is fulfilled in Christ if you have been united to Jesus Christ through faith whatever benefits are promised here, we share in them an everlasting kingdom, a dominion, even a relationship as sons to a father with God. And we know that's true from Hebrews, where he promises to discipline us in a fatherly, tender way for our good and for his glory. And in this, we can rejoice. We think so frequently of Christ's kingship as one merely of authority and rule and conquering and subduing and ruling and all that's glorious. But so much more, we should think of this as a great cause for rejoicing. A great cause for comfort. That He has given us rest on every side. Conquered our sin, yes. Subdued our wills, absolutely. But for what purpose? That we might be a people who are freed up to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Let us pray.